Already a wonderfully full morning with the presence of God here in a very rich way. My name is Chris. I'm one of the elders, one of the pastors here at the church. And if you're visiting with us today, as Wade said, welcome. We are a spiritual family uh, with many various backgrounds and cultures and languages and nationalities, but we are all the family of God. One family. Um, if you have your Bibles or devices, uh, you can turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to get there down the road. Uh, last week, we started a new sermon series called Peculiar, a different kind of community. And I wasn't speaking of anyone when I selected that title, though some of you are more peculiar than others. I'm not looking at anyone, but you know who you are. Uh, no, the, the basis of the sermon series is from uh, 1 Peter 2, where Peter says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, or a people of God's own possession. That's what makes us peculiar. Not that we're weird, though we are a little, but that we belong to him. That's what sets us apart, makes us unique, and makes us strange in settings that are, are not familiar with that. We are God's possession that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. That's the kind of church we wanna be, peculiar. A different kind of community. It's how we should be. But it's not always the case among Christians, churches. In his 2020 article, The Sad Irony of Celebrity Pastors, which is an amazing read, Ben Sixsmith writes, I am not a religious person, so it is not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. Mm. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, and there is no, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. Ouch. Does that hit you anywhere? What would people say about us? Do we just blend in? We should be peculiar, distinct, set apart, sanctified is what that means. Holy, which means those things set apart as he is holy. And one of those ways that we should stand out is by being a community who follows Jesus in a culture of ideological idolatry. We live in the era of ideology. You, you, they're everywhere. The last hundred years has been the age of ideology. From liberalism and conservatism and socialism even communism and Nazism and militarism. And now it's being squeezed by postmodernism 
and progressivism and nationalism and tribalism. How many isms can he say today? These isms and many others have become for many a new type of religion. They normally evolve into a belief system for interpreting all of life, but doing so apart from God. But in the meantime, they choose to commingle with religion until they can replace it. It confirms what the great missiologist Leslie Newbigin said decades ago, that as the West grows more secularized, religion won't go away. It will just become a political religion in various forms. And I think that is more and more true in our culture. As we have grown more and more secular, there is still religion out there. Pastor and writer John Mark Comer, who has been a real inspiration in his writings and sermons for me, says ideologies are where do you take a part of the truth and make it the whole, or where do you take a good thing and make it ultimate. Isn't that something? This taking a part of the true the truth and making it whole or, or taking something that is good and making it ultimate is how many theologians, including my systematic theologian, theology professor in Bible school taught, is idolatry. It's the definition of it. Taking a part of the truth, making it the whole, taking one good thing and making it ultimate. It's the beginning of heresy, certainly idolatry. Which is interesting because when we commonly think of idolatry, uh, we think that's ancient history. That somehow that's what they did back then, where people worshipped a carved or graven image made of of stone or, or wood, and that it was representing a God who exerts control over some aspect of the physical world. But idolatry is not relegated to the ancient world. Augustine said idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that is meant to be worshiped. And this means that we as followers of Jesus can also have our idols, to which nobody said amen. Wow. No, we were all just examining ourselves thinking, oh no, I hope he doesn't pick on any of my idols. We can have our idols, even as we're following him, we can make mixture of our faith, adding things into it. Especially if our ideologies of success or equity or political power or utopia are just really designed to use God to get to the end rather than worship him for who he really is. I want you to consider with me a few photographs that we're going to look at and see what you see. The first group is advocating for abortion rights, which is very common in our nation, especially over the last 50 years and even more so in the last several years. Here, there is someone with a sign that is saying pro-choice is actually pro-life. And her rationale is that abortion, if it were illegal, would force women into dangerous and archaic means to get one. 
And so therefore, it must be pro-life. <clears throat> but the part that really gets me is the person standing next to that person who's holding a sign that seems to declare that abortion is actually a Christian value. The next picture, we see someone declaring her pride in being gay and insisting Christians step up and make her proud to be a Christian. Interesting that she uses the word proud. <clears throat> Finally, the third picture, we see an anglicized picture of Jesus wearing a Make America Great hat again. Again hat. I got that wrong. A MAGA hat. Now, I realize I'm in a red state, and I could be stepping on thin ice right now. But the increasing politicization of the Christian faith is very troubling in our nation and around the world. I'm not talking about patriotism. I find that I am very patriotic, very concerned and appreciative of our nation and all those who fought for our freedoms and our liberties. And I'm so grateful that God has blessed us that we honestly might be a blessing to the world around us. I think that's largely one of the reasons why God has blessed, has blessed our country. When we stopped sowing into the things of God, the favor and the hand may have been lifted. And I am certainly not disagreeing with anyone's desire, earnest desire, to see people turn to Jesus. That's what my whole life is about. But the rapid rise of Christian nationalism is alarming. And it doesn't offer an answer to secularism. It is really just another form of it. Now, before you throw stuff or log off or tune out, understand I'm not trying to pick a fight about politics, sexuality, and abortion. That's low-hanging fruit, honestly, if you want to fight. I don't think anybody wants to. I hope not. <laughs> if anybody wants to send emails today, they go to curtisforman at gmail.com. <laughs> What I am trying to do is to warn us as followers of Jesus to be careful about the things we add to our lives. For we all have a tendency to mix the way of Jesus with the way of the world. And when we commingle such things with orthodox Christian faith, it may look pseudo-religious, but it's really just idolatrous. We see it throughout the Bible, throughout history. We see it in the children of Israel when they got tired of waiting for Moses to come down the mountain and figured he would to be dead. I mean, it was all lit up with smoke and fire and lightning. He probably didn't make it out. And so they came to Aaron and demanded that he make for them a God like other nations to go before them. And Aaron passed the offering plate and they all dropped in the gold earrings that they had taken that the, the, the Egyptians had given them as they were departing the land and they had enough gold earrings and gold devices and things and trinkets for Aaron to make a golden calf 
And he said when he made it, here is your God, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Really, Aaron? Weren't you there during all the plagues when God showed himself strong? Weren't you there when the blood on your doorpost caused the spirit of death to pass over, leaving your firstborn alive? Weren't you there when you saw the Red Sea part before your eyes while those that were trailing behind you got swept up in the, in the water as they fell upon them? Weren't you there when manna fell down out of heaven, giving what sustenance all the people needed every day of the week and twice on Saturday for the Sabbath, Friday for the Sabbath? <laughs> Weren't you there when, when water came out of the rock to give water to the flocks and to all the people? And now you're making a golden idol? Exodus 32, five says, when Aaron saw this, what he had made, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival of the Lord. Look at that word Lord, it's all capitalized. It's the same word for the Lord God Almighty, Yahweh. And so the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And afterward they sat down to eat and drink and to binge watch Game of Thrones. <laughs> Indulge in revelry, pretty much the same thing. Some think Aaron was not only hammering out a golden calf, but blaspheming by calling it the name reserved for God, Yahweh. Others think that he was trying to add a physical representation of Yahweh, giving the people something to focus on and so, so they wouldn't hurt him. Either way, it's idolatry. It is just as idolatrous to use the Lord who was meant to be worshipped as it is to worship something that was meant to be used. The thing we must realize is that we are all prone towards syncretism, which is the mixing, the, the amalgamation, the fusion of different views, of different schools of thought, of religious different teachings and inputs and competing ideas. We often try to hammer out our own treasures and add them to our worship of God. Bundling our religion like we bundle our cable. Where we take some of Jesus, add a little individualism, throw in a heaping cup of self-reliance and add a tolerant view, a more tolerant view of sexuality that makes us more acceptable in this world. And then a full preservation of my rights because they're my rights. We become, instead of disciples, consumers. And voila, we have something much more appealing to our eyes. We fashion for ourselves a golden calf to go up before us, falling prey to the same idolatry as the children of Israel. How do we follow Jesus in an age of ideology? When ideologies are all around trying to grab us and suck us in to their orbit. Much of what Paul writes to the Corinthian church 
can help us in this matter. The book, First and Second Corinthians, are excellent books for this because there was a real mixture in that church and there were real things that needed to be addressed. Paul spends 2 Corinthians 10, 11, and 12 defending his own ministry as he's dealing with a group of opponents, those that are resisting him, who claim to be spiritual, but in reality, they, as he puts it in chapter 11, verse 13, they are false prophets, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants, his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Now, I was telling my wife this morning, when I read that, I have to remind myself, these were people in the church. We're not talking about Satan worshipers here. People that are practicing new age religion. We're talking about people who claim to be followers of Jesus. And yet he says they are masquerading just like Satan did. They're masquerading as servants of righteousness, but they really are not that at all. Paul leaves no doubt as to who the false apostles are working for. Now, I am a pastor shepherd primarily, and I love the call of God. And I recognize that my number one call as a pastor shepherd is to protect, to feed, and to tend to the flock. Now, uh, we don't have a super big church, but I'm always grateful that we have others that are also called a pastor and shepherd because I couldn't do all that for all of you. And thank God the Lord is raising up more leaders among us who also have a call on their lives. In fact, we are all called to one form or another, of either caring for, of evangelizing, of doing the work of the ministry. We are not a spectator sport. We're all on the field. I know it's set up here where y'all are all looking at me, but I wish we could all be in a big circle because we ought to be looking at each other as we all look to the Lord. But I digress. I understand as a shepherd pastor that there are false, deceitful influencers in and around today's church. Not primarily here, I pray, but I see it throughout the universal church. And they're masquerading as righteous servants. And and it makes me feel like Paul did. I try to resist uh, inserting myself into areas I don't belong. And I try not to go places I'm not responsible for, but sometimes I just feel like I should. I, I try to resist. But I will say this, by God's grace, if and when false teachers rise up here, wolves dressed in sheep's clothing, those who would do harm and try to influence our community away from the Lord, it would be incumbent upon me and the elders and the leaders of this church to rise up, take a stand, defend the faith, and protect the flock. And I assure you, and I promise before the Lord, that I will always do that by his grace and call. One of, the things that, one of the things that Mike Sweeney told me years ago when he and Amy first started coming to this church is that they felt when Brother John and his leadership, they felt a safety here. Not safe in the way that you don't get uncomfortable and challenged to go do other things, 
but safe in that he was a good shepherd and wouldn't let outside forces come in for disunity, for disharmony, for uh, bickering, for fighting, for all sorts of dissension. And I'm grateful for that legacy as a church, and by God's grace, our elders have walked in that as well. When we look at how Paul looks and defends his faith, we can look back at these verses I had you turn to. I know you thought I would never get there. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. Paul says, By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you went away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that, they, that we live by the standards of this world. Apparently, Paul was diminutive in size. At least that's what people speculate. And people say that he wasn't very forceful or bold when he was in, in front of you. But man, he was wicked smart when he wrote a letter. <laughs> he, could, he, could, he could make a strong case by writing a letter. But what he's saying here is, yes, I may have been timid when I was there face to face, but I'm writing to you boldly, and when I show up, if I have to be bold, I will be. I like that. But notice that in his confrontation of these false apostles, he is addressing them in humility and gentleness of Christ. Regardless of being bold or timid, it's in the humility and gentleness of Christ. It tells me that we don't have to get nasty to do the work of God. We don't have to be ugly with our neighbors and with those that disagree with us in order to be bold. Our confidence is in the Lord Jesus, not in our fiery argument or in our mastery of debate. I've said it before, I don't think you argue people into the kingdom. And Paul makes clear that he and those with him do not live by the standard of this world. I love, I use the NIV today because I love that phrase. They do not live, we do not live by the standard of this world. And neither to the people of God. John 17, Jesus is praying a prayer and he prays this, that his disciples who are in the world would not be of the world, just as he was not of the world. That is the truth of those who are in Christ Jesus. We are in the world, but we're not of it. And we should be careful mixing the worldly things into the worship of our living God. He goes on in verse 3, he says, For though we live in the world, Paul is picking up on this language Jesus prayed, we do not wage war as the world does. God's not calling us to take something back or call people out or put people down. We don't wage war as the world does. We follow Jesus. We follow Jesus who didn't lash out who gave his life as a ransom for many, who chose to suffer instead of demand his rights. And so we don't resort to violence. We don't call people names. We don't take pride in our position. We don't use contempt, which seems to be a value statement these days. We don't use moral superiority. We don't do that. We don't wage war as the world does. 
Paul goes on in verse 4, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Our weapons are not the weapons of the world. The world has weapons. You know that, right? The world is weaponizing everything it can, from words to ideas to education to agendas to social constructs, every institution. It's weaponizing it every chance it gets, but we don't wage with the world using the weapons of the world. We are called to demolish strongholds. I I want you to remember this, that a stronghold starts with a foothold. A foothold of the enemy where you believe a lie or you have an opinion you form or you have a habit you keep going back to or you have a compromise that you make or you have a relationship that you keep returning to that you know you shouldn't or you have company that you keep that you know that God's not happy with. When you have a foothold like that, it's going to turn into a stronghold. But Jesus gives us weapons to defeat, to demolish these strongholds. And and Paul says every argument against the knowledge of God, every pretension, which is an interesting word. The ESV says every lofty opinion, every exalted thing. Peterson says every warped Philosophy. Could I dare say every ideology that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, we are called to demolish. And we don't do it by bashing people over the head with our Bibles or winning an argument online or even other tactics that the world would use. We do it in the heavenly realm. So this morning, I have some questions for us. How are we doing when it comes to ideologies? Have certain belief systems, systems of this world become more influential with you than the great commandment to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself? And also, the great commission to go into all the world, making, ba- making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have we been fashioning an idol out of our own treasures, our own trinkets, our own possessions, calling it God or adding it to our worship of God? Both are idolatry. And are we walking in true humility and gentleness as Paul did? Or are we living by the standards of this world? Are we fighting a carnal fight? A fight of flesh? Are we fighting as the world does? Or are we using the weapons we've been given that are mighty in God to demolish strongholds in our lives and in the places around us that God has given us influence? 
destroying every argument and pretension and anything that exalts itself, any ideology, philosophy, any brainstorm, any artificial intelligence, anything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, are we destroying that in the heavenly place, taking thought every captive, excuse me, taking captive every thought and making sure that we are in the obedience of Christ. In a culture that embraces every conceivable ideological cause, we are called to follow Jesus. And that's called orthodoxy. Maybe the biblical word is the way, capital W, the way. His way is the way we live. We're called to follow him and to resist the trend towards syncretism where we mix different ideologies into our spiritual walk. We don't want to co-mingle so that we can coexist. We want to worship the one who is worthy of our worship and not add to him anything else. May we as God's people be this kind of community. Amen. My wife is going to come we're going to pray for you. This is my wife, Donna. She's the uh, better half of the two of us. And we like to take this moment to let her share her heart and then spend some time in prayer before we dismiss. Beth Moore says um, that God shows us our needs so he can meet them. So the message today although it is a plumb line that we need to examine what the Lord has to say about it in our lives, it's mercy, it's goodness, it's the way, the path for living. Um, I've been in a Bible study recently uh, written by Emily, and in it she said, when we believe lies about God's heart, we make a new idol we make a new God. It isn't just what we do or how we spend our time or what we think is important. It's what we think about him. And that has really exercised me, and I have found some places where I need to tear down thoughts that don't align with who he is. Um, And so when I pray for us today, I'm going to pray in several areas of idolatry, but It's not just what you care about. It's actually, is your view of God real? Because if it isn't, then you've made an idol, just as surely as the guy made the calf. Yeah. We want to pray for you, and I I feel impressed to just let you respond. Mm -hmm. Um, If the Lord has been speaking to you this morning and you recognize mixture in your life, you recognize allegiance in places it shouldn't be, maybe you recognize where ideology has kind of crept in and begun to take your focus away from the Lord. Maybe it's that you have not been walking in true humility and gentleness, but fighting a fight that the world fights. Or maybe it's that you've not been addressing the footholds in your life and they're becoming strongholds. And maybe it's something else altogether different. But if you're in need of prayer this morning, 
I just feel impressed that while we're here in this moment, would you just stand to your feet so we can pray for you? The Lord will see your step of faith towards this. And I know it's maybe pressure, but just you and God. If that's the Lord speaking to you, would you just stand where you are? Yes. Others that feel called to stand. Ask the Lord for freedom. I think there are others. I really sense the Holy Spirit speaking to some. Yes. Hallelujah. Anyone else? Now, can we all stand with them? Because we, though we may not be struggling, know someone who is. And let's pray together. Father, we're grateful that you're true and you're all the truth there is. Nothing is true apart from you. And we're grateful that you are long-suffering with us. You see all that we are and all that you are calling us to be. And you see where the plumb line is and where we stand next to it. Where do we meet the measure and where we don't. Yes. You bring conviction because that is the power to change. Not because we can change ourselves, but we can turn to you and allow you to sift through our thoughts and our motives, our choices, our priorities, and tell us what needs to stay and what needs to go and we don't have to be afraid Father That's right. we don't have to be afraid of being found in the wrong That's right. because you're not asking us to make ourselves right you're asking us to agree with you about whatever it is you're touching That's right. and receive Receive conviction, receive repentance, receive forgiveness. Yes. That we could be changed. That's right. That we could become more peculiar, more, um, more belonging to you, more obviously yours, God. Yes. That's our heart. Yes, Jesus. Thank you. And only you can make it happen. And so we ask that you would have your way in us. That you would take thoughts captive that stand up against the knowledge of God. And that you would make us into your witnesses, your ambassadors, your reconcilers, because we have first been reconciled to you. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for moving among us this morning, being in our midst as we 
come into your presence with thanksgiving and song, speaking to us words of encouragement and edification, building us up, even speaking to us about spiritual gifts and how they should be earnestly desired. And we thank you, Lord, for letting your spirit move among us even now where you are speaking and bringing conviction and healing and hope. I pray in the name of Jesus against the forces of hell, every argument and every pretension, every lofty idea, every ideology, every focal point that's not you that has exalted itself against the knowledge of God. We stand in the authority of Jesus Christ And by that authority, we bind those things and pull them down and demolish the strongholds in people's lives. We declare freedom where there has been bondage. We declare healing where there has been sickness. We declare no fear where there has been fear. We declare peace where there has been anxiety and depression. And I pray, Lord, that every foothold that has been accessible to the enemy would be shut down in Jesus' name that the footholds in our lives would, would crumble and would be closed so that strongholds would not even be formed. But where strongholds are, we pull them down in Jesus' name. We pull them down because the power of Jesus and his name is greater than any power we've ever faced before. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Be free, be free, the Lord says. Walk in my freedom. Receive my liberty in Jesus' name. Lord, we receive from you and pray that we will walk and submit to you as you lead us from this place. Thank you. Thank you. Can we all say amen? Let's sing this song.